Hey, we're going to be talking about something great. It's called, Which Jesus Do You Want? That's the title of the sermon. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that I don't have to do this alone. That you're here. And I would ask that you would cover me with your blood, that you would protect me, that you would take over. You'd forgive me and cleanse me of any sin. And you'd fill me with your spirit, that you would speak to your people. And Lord, that you would help us not to just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of them. And that you would not just stir us, but that you would change us. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, before I begin, I need to tell you about a great event that we're doing on June 8th. Coach Tomlin and myself and Urban Impact Foundation are putting on a dad's conference. Be held on June 8th, and I'm encouraging you men to all come. You know what I found over the years as I've studied and looked at statistics that 24 million children in America are not living with their dad. Now that's not just going on in inner cities or out in rural areas. That's happening all over the country. And I found that as we are trying to help us to be stronger men, that we need to be fathers. And I'm finding as I'm talking to men that they don't know how to be a good dad. Their fathers weren't in in their lives, or they didn't have a good relationship. They'd never really seen an example. And if they have, they haven't ever met anybody. Uh, If they they know somebody, they haven't met anybody that's come alongside of them and, and strengthened them and trained them and helped them. So we're putting on this dad's conference. It's for every man, whether you want to be a dad, whether you are a father, or whether you're a grandfather. It's for all of us. And we've put on a great, great day. We're bringing in Tony Dungy's ministry called All Pro Dad. The speaker is Mark Merrill. He runs the ministry. It's very practical, practical, very down-to-earth, encouraging you to be part of that. Then we put together some of the best pastors in the city of Pittsburgh. In all the years that I've been in Pittsburgh, other than the Billy Graham crusade, I've never seen so many pastors cross lines and come together under one event other than this one. So when you go to the website and you look up what's going on, you'll be amazed about who's going to come and train us to be better fathers. But also at the end, Coach Tomlin's going to get up and he's going to tell his story. And now that he doesn't do that. You haven't heard it on any radio, you haven't heard it on television, but he's going to share it with us because he wants to help us to understand how we can make an impact with the fatherless. So we're going to talk about how we can be stronger dads. We're going to be gathered together again on June 8th and I want you to be part of that. Now, when you think about this, I remember bringing all the pastors together and I said to them, I said, guys, you know, when I look at the statistics, they're the same in the church as well as outside of the church. I said, you know what? We as pastors haven't done a very good job training our men to be fathers. We spend one Sunday, some of us, speaking about it. And then the rest of the year, we never talk about it again. Men, I know that you're struggling. Some of you are dealing with mixed marriages. Some of you are dealing with divorces. Others of you have never really had that example. And some of you are great fathers. But no matter where you are, iron sharpens iron, men. And I encourage you to make the date. Bring some friends. Make it happen. And what's wonderful is that men around the country... NFL players, NFL chaplains are calling me and saying, what are you doing with dads? We want to see if we can bring that to our city. We have an opportunity as Christ Church to be at the grassroots, I believe, of something that's not only going to impact our city, but has the possibility that might impact other NFL cities. 
And you know why they want to bring it into their city? Because the men that they work with on the teams that they coach have never had very good fathers. And they see it as an epidemic, an epidemic in, our, in our country, and they're trying to step up and do something for us as men. I encourage you to be part of it. Don't miss it. Right now, it's $29. You're not gonna, we're going to give you breakfast, lunch, 29 bucks, give you a book, give you a devotion. You're not going to find that deal. That's an early bird deal for you. After a couple weeks, it goes to 35 and then it goes to 40 So sign up as soon as you can. I should be a salesman, shouldn't I? Here we are. Which Jesus do you want? I am, but not for cars or things like that. Which Jesus, which Jesus do you want? That's what we're talking about today. You know, throughout history, parades have been used by people to celebrate great achievements. In my lifetime, either through television or personally, I've seen parades. I mean, I've seen ticker tape showers falling on people. Marching bands, thousands of people lining the streets of our city, cheering on astronauts for their achievements, war heroes, sports championship teams. In 2005, Mr. Toy, B-Toy, and myself took my boys, Nathan, Joshua, and Jonathan, into the city, and we participated in the parade for the Pittsburgh Steelers when they won the Super Bowl in 2005. You remember that? It was fantastic. Maybe you were there. Hundreds of thousands of people in the city. It was fantastic. But today, we're looking in a passage, and in this passage, we find the greatest parade of all time. It happened 2,000 years ago. It was a very simple parade. It was a one-man donkey ride. One man riding on a donkey. And instead of ticker tape the the route, his way into Jerusalem was paved, if you will, with garments and palm branches. Now the Hebrews were having a holiday. It was the Passover week in Jerusalem. And historians agree there must have been two million people that jammed into that holy city that week. And Jesus is just one of the great attractions. He was extremely popular at this time. His public popularity was at its all-time high because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. At the same time, his political popularity with religious leaders was at its all-time low. Why? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. They were threatened by Jesus. He was taking their power and their popularity. So they began to plot against him to assassinate Lazarus and Jesus, but the main target was Jesus Christ. Because they thought if they could get rid of him, they could regain the popularity and the power that they had over the people. So there they are, plotting this assassination in the city. Meanwhile, Jesus is staying with friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And he's outside the city, and he's in a little town called Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up our story. In Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, or colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. 
Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, tell them the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. The two disciples were given really a specific assignment. They were finding a colt that had never been ridden and when they untied it, if somebody said anything to them, they were to say, the Lord needs it. Now that's really specific. So what happens? In verse 4, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a door. As they untied it, some people standing there, Luke says in his account that it was the owners, asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. That's amazing. Jesus even told his disciples the exact words they were to use should anyone ask them. I mean, Jesus was really got his big game on right here. He had it right down. He knew exactly what was going on, and he was in control. But you know, when you begin to look at all the accounts, when you begin to look at the Easter story, you're tempted to believe that somehow Jesus is a victim of his own circumstances. You start looking, you start looking, well, he must be a victim of his circumstances. I mean, they're plotting against him, he knows it. But then Judas, who he knew, betrayed him. And then they had this mock-type trial, and they falsely convicted him, and then he's murdered. And you begin to think, was he a victim? But then when you look at our passage, you say, no, no, he was in control. Let me remind you that when Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he has probably walked into Jerusalem Hundreds, if not thousands of times. Matter of fact, when you look into the Gospels, Jesus is always walking. You never see him ride anything except right here. Never. You never see him in a chariot. You never see him on a camel, on a donkey, on a horse. He's always walking. But all of a sudden, right here, he gets really meticulous. And he chooses to ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Why? Because he's fulfilling a prophecy. He's got a plan, everybody. And he's working his plan. He has a mission, and he's working his mission. And he's fulfilling a prophecy that was foretold about him 500 years earlier. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. Oh, I love it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. By the way, 12 people last service gave their life to Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, to God be the glory. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is not a tragic figure whose plans have horribly derailed. Jesus knows the plan, he's working the plan, he's on a mission, and his mission is to lay down his life for all of mankind in the city of Jerusalem. He has told his disciples that's where he's headed and he's going there. And he's riding in on a donkey. He's fulfilling prophecy. So we find right here that Jesus is not a victim. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't Judas or the people or Pilate or even the Roman soldiers that had the power to take Jesus' life. Oh, they participated, but they didn't have the power to take his life. Because over in John chapter 10, verse 17, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, and before he started walking into Jerusalem, this is what Jesus said. He said this. He said, Jesus says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus wasn't a victim. He was on a mission. And you know what? When he was hanging on that cross or before he ever got onto the cross, he could have called down a legion of angels and had those people wiped out. Remember, he controlled the nature, all nature, wind, water, trees. He controlled it. He could have said, earth, open up, and all those people could have been swallowed up in a moment. He could have continued to heal himself on the cross. They could have nailed him to the cross a hundred times. And just as he healed those who couldn't walk and couldn't see and couldn't talk, and he raised people from the dead, he could have continued to heal himself. So what kept him on that cross? Why did he go to that cross? It wasn't the nails, what we're going to learn. It wasn't the nails that kept him on that cross. It was his love for you. It was his love for you that kept him on that cross. Because he knew if he didn't go to the cross, you and I and every other man or woman or child that ever would be born would have been lost forever, separated from God. So he was on a mission, and he was in control. So we find that he, in this passage, is fulfilling prophecy. But now we're finding that he, Jesus, is going to declare that he is not a political king, but he is the prince of peace. He is not a political king, but he is the prince of peace. Look at verse 7 with me. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is coming. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now Jesus had been drawing crowds by the thousands everywhere he went. And on this day it's no different. Thousands of people are coming out of the city and they come to see Jesus. And when they see him, in their minds they're thinking to themselves, he is the king. He's the king. That's why they use the language in verse 10 when they say this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They believed that he was the son of David, that he was the king, and he was coming that day to Jerusalem to set up his national and political kingdom. They believed that. And they believed that he had the power and that he was, oh, he was going to come and overtake the Romans and set them free from their oppression. They believed and hoped that Jesus Christ was going to launch a revolution against the Romans and that he was going to release the holy city from these pagans who occupied it. And they believed that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and anything was possible. They believed that they were invincible because if they went to war and they died, Jesus Christ had the power to raise them from the dead. They even believed that possibly that Jesus was going to raise up an army that had already died and raised them up and they were going to storm that city and take it back. That was their hope. But then when they watched Jesus riding into the city, they said, what's wrong with this picture? Really wrong with this picture. You see, in those days, when they were going to go to war or after a war, the king would ride in, the conquering king would ride in either on a chariot or a stallion, a, a horse. And the horse in the, in the chariot represented power and victory. But when the king, when there was peace, when they were going through peace, if you will, 
Let me say it better. But in times of peace, the king would ride in on a donkey. And the donkey symbolized peace prevailed. So when they're seeing Jesus ride into Jerusalem, what Jesus is saying to the people, he's declaring that he is a king proclaiming not war, but peace. And how did the people respond? What do you mean, peace? We're looking for a revolution. What do you, what do you mean, peace, Jesus? We want it. Do you know what these people are doing to us? Do you know what they, how they oppress us? We're going to war, my friend. We want a revolution. In just five days, just five days, Jesus goes from a hero to a zero in their mind. In just five days, he goes from red carpet treatment to spreading, is shedding his blood, his red blood. In just five short days, Jesus was hearing, Hosanna, save us now. And now he's hearing, crucify me, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They had dreams and he wasn't fulfilling them. See, Jesus, he wasn't the Jesus they were looking for. He wasn't the Jesus they wanted. They wanted a a political king, a king who would set up his kingdom. But Jesus was saying that he was a prince, the prince of peace. Now, what kind of peace was he bringing? He was, hear me, he was not bringing a peace that would make peace with Rome. What he was bringing, which they did not understand, is that he was coming to make peace with God on their behalf. He was coming to make peace with God on their behalf. He had nothing to do with the political scene. He had come from a totally different purpose. He had come to not liberate them from the Romans, but to liberate them from their sin. And they were only looking at it horizontally. They were only looking at it physically. They didn't have any vertical, spiritual eyes to see what he was really doing, and they missed it. Oh, he was coming for peace, but he was coming to make peace with God on their behalf. In the very book that we're studying, Mark, in the second chapter, he lays out his plan. You see it unfolding, what he's talking about right here in our passage. Let me tell you that story very quickly. I think you studied it a few weeks back. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, you have a a person who's crippled, and he has four friends. They put him on a mat. They take him to Jesus. When they get to Jesus, Jesus is in a house, and he's preaching, and the house is so packed they can't get inside. So they crawl up on top of the roof. They cut a hole out in the roof, and they they lower down their buddy right in front of Jesus. And in verse 5, it says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked in full view of them all. Now, what's the point? 
The religious leaders and the friends thought that the greatest need of this man was to be healed. Now visually, that's what they needed. That man needed, he needed to be healed. But Jesus saw the greatest need. And that need was for that man to be forgiven of his sins. That man needed to be forgiven of his sins. Because Jesus understood that if he just healed the man and didn't deal with his sins, then that man would be lost for all eternity. And if he just healed him, then that was a temporary fix to an eternal problem. So Jesus dealt first with his sins because he was dealing with something that would be permanent and not temporary. He was dealing with with his sins so that he would have a life eternal and not just a life and die. He was there to deal with the sins so that we could have a relationship with God and he wasn't thinking uh, he wasn't thinking temporary he was thinking eternally in the same way if jesus would have taken over rome and set up his kingdom at that time and would not have gone to the cross then those who stood on the streets that day and said hosanna save us now they would have been lost and so would all of us but jesus understood that he hadn't come to set up a political kingdom he came as the prince of peace to make peace with god on all of our behalfs He had to go to the cross or all of us were lost. Jesus understood this great truth. Hear me. There will never be peace in the world until there's peace in nations. And there'll never be peace in nations until there's peace in communities. And there'll never be peace in communities until there's peace in families. And there'll never be peace in families until there's peace in individuals. And there'll never be peace in individuals until we invite the Prince of Peace to reign and rule in our hearts. You see, Jesus taught three types or three kinds of peace. He said there's peace with God, peace of God, and peace with each other. And what he taught is that he said we are to be peacemakers with each other, not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers do whatever it takes to keep peace. They'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll do anything just to keep the peace. That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he talks about us being peacemakers, he's talking about doing the right thing at the right time and being willing to be responsible for your your actions and be able to forgive and to be forgiven and to move always to the place of reconciliation, to make peace and say things that are difficult and hard even, but not to back away until you're reconciled. That's a peacemaker. That's not a peacekeeper. And he said that we are to be peacemakers, to have peace with each other. Then he goes on, he says, we're to have the peace of God, the peace of God in all circumstances. Your circumstances can be falling apart all around you, but you have the peace of God in midst of it all. That's what he promised he could give to you. But then he goes on, he says, but then there's the peace with God. And matter of fact, if you do not have the peace with God, you will never experience the peace of God and you'll never really be at peace with one another. Do you understand? Those are outcomes of your relationship with Jesus Christ because you made peace with God. Your sins are forgiven and you have a new life and the Spirit of God dwells within you and you're born again of Him. Jesus understood all of this. And that's why He did what He did and He continued to go to the cross because He knew that all of us would be lost. So now the question is, how do you make peace with God? If I was asked you and call you right up, stand you right up, right here, right now, and say, how do you make peace with God? What would you say? 
Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. Good place to go, isn't it? The Bible says this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified through faith. Just as if we've never sinned. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all your sin. He paid the penalty of our sin. And he wiped it clean. Your sin, your past, your present, and your future. When, you, when Jesus died on that cross, he died for all of your sin. And because he died for your sin, your sin has been removed. Now you're at peace with God because he paid your debt. See, the wage of the sin is death. And when we break the laws of God, there's consequences. Just like when we break the laws of man, there's consequences. There's consequences when we break the laws of, man, of God. And the, and, the, and the consequences are that we die. In other words, our relationship with God is broken forever. Or, or for that period of time. Until what? Until our debt's paid. And how do you pay your debt? Someone's got to die. Problem is, you, you and I die. We die in our sins and we're lost. But Jesus, who knew no sin, he stepped up and went to the cross because he loved you. And he went to that cross and he paid the full debt. And that's why we say, when we, we, we preach on this at, at at Easter, it's finished. It means it's finished. It means he paid your debt in full. Your past, your present, your future sins. He paid it. When you get a bill in the, in the mail and you paid it and they had that red stamp on that bill that says paid in full, do you repay it? No, it's paid in full. It's done. Jesus died on the cross and he says, anyone who believes in me, I justify you. Just as you've never sinned. And if you put your faith in me, I will make peace with God on your behalf. And you are born again of the spirit of God. And he gives to you. And this is what's great. He not only died, but he was raised again from the dead. And he lives. He's in this very room right here, right now, with you. He's here right here. And what he wants this morning is for you to begin a relationship with him. So how do you do that? Very simple. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. What's it mean to have faith? That's a very difficult word. What's it mean to believe? Well, I've told you before, it's as simple as A, B, C. Quickly, A means admit. B means believe. C means to commit. Let's look at admit very quickly. You know, I've, I've dealt with people for years in ministry. And when you find, your, when you find somebody who's really struggling with addictions, in other, words, in other words, they're addicted to alcohol, drugs, pornography, uh, gambling, whatever. Until they come to that place that they're willing to take responsibility for their actions and admit that they have a problem, you can't help them. You can't. But the moment they begin to admit that they have a problem, take responsibility, they're on their way to recovery. And when we look at God and we understand what's going on in our lives, we need to know that we have a problem. And that problem is this, that we have all gone astray. We've all sinned. In other words, we've done something, said something that we wish we would have never done and said, but we said it. And we know that it was wrong, and we know those times are wrong, but we do it anyway. That's called sin. And the moment you sin, your relationship with God is broken. So the first beginning of having peace with God is saying, yes, I agree. I have a problem. I've sinned. And I need a Savior. And if that's you this morning, you're on your way 
to having peace with God. Second, though, is you need to believe. I remember when I was a young boy, my father took me out into a pool. I've told this so many times, but it helped so many. He took me out in a pool, and I laid on the, on, the, on the pool, on the, on the water, and I was trying to float on my back. And I kept going down to the bottom of the pool. And finally, my father took the water in his hands. He threw it up in the air like this, and he said, Ed, water just like this holds up Navy ships. Navy. We stop struggling, stop trying, and start trusting. Just put your weight on the water and let the water do what it does. That made sense. I leaned, I leaned back, and the water held me up. Hear me, what you're doing when you say you believe, you are saying that you are transferring your trust from yourself and you're putting it on full, full weight upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In other words, you're believing that what Jesus did on that cross, he did for you. And you're not going to try anymore, you're not going to try to be good enough, you're just going to rely on what Jesus did for you and you're going to put your full weight on him. And in that moment, Jesus says that I paid for it all, it's finished. You're trusting in his work, not yours. And you know what? Many of us, though, somehow in our minds, we think we got to do something else. Listen, you're also trusting that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. See, when you try to do more, you're telling Jesus that what he did wasn't good enough for you. Don't do that. Put your full weight on Jesus and know what he did is enough. But here's where people make the mistake. They admit and they believe, but they never commit. A lot of you are out there and you are struggling. You're asking yourself, why don't I have peace? Why am I not fulfilled? Why don't I, you know, other people seem to have what, have something that I don't. And I've been in the church and I don't understand. Because you've never gone to number three. You've never really, hear me, you've never really surrendered yourself to Jesus. You know, in our story, there was an owner of a donkey. And when they came up and they said, the Lord's in need of it, they untied that donkey and they gave it to the Lord. Hear me. There might be some of you in this room that God is saying, untie that and give it to me. And you're saying no. As long as you keep saying no, you're never really going to be committed. And you're never going to really experience the fullness of what God has for you because you won't let go. You've got to commit yourself totally and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he will set you free. You will experience stuff that you've never experienced in your life. But as long as you hold on to it, as long as you say no to God, God cannot do it for you. Understand? Because you're the one that's standing in the way. You know, when I go to airports, I go into airports and I have a bag in my hand all the time. And I go in and I go in and I say, okay, here's my ticket. We get the ticket going. And say I had my bag sitting there and all of a sudden I turned and it's gone. And I look at the person behind the counter and I say, you know, my bag was right here. It's gone. Can you help me? They would say to me, Mr. Glover, you didn't commit the bag to us. We're not responsible. So I'd run through the airport trying to find my bag. Well, let's take numbers. Scenario number two, I come into the airport, and this time I commit my bag. Get on a plane, fly to Cleveland. Get out on the Cleveland airport, go into the baggage claim, and my bag's missing. I walk over to the person, and I say, listen, I committed my bag to this this airline back in Pittsburgh. Here's the baggage claim ticket. Can you help me? They'll say, yes, sir. You committed that bag to us. We're responsible. We'll do everything we can to find it. The difference is, number one, I didn't commit my bag. Number two, I did commit my bag. Hear me. 
If you are unwilling to commit yourself and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, you're responsible. You really want to be responsible? Man, I don't. I know who I am. But if you don't surrender it, if you don't untie it, it's yours. But if you're willing to untie it and commit it to Jesus Christ, he's responsible. And he'll take care of it. Today, would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask that today in this room, that if you're not sure that you have peace with God, I've just explained that you can. By admitting, believing, and committing. And Jesus Christ can give you that peace with God. So that you can experience the peace of God. And so that you can experience the peace with each other. But you need to make a commitment. With everyone's heads bowed, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you'd like to pray this prayer with me, what you're saying, you're saying, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm committing myself to you. And after I'm done praying, I'm going to ask you to simply raise your hand. I want to see that hand. And then I'm going to ask you to go into the back, and I'm going to give you some material. I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to help you along in your walk. So that being said, think about it for a moment. It's the greatest decision of your life. If you want to pray this prayer with me and commit yourself to Jesus, pray this prayer at this time. Lord Jesus, I admit that I need a Savior. And I believe what you did on the cross was for me, and it was enough. And I transfer my trust from myself to you. And now I untie my donkeys. Those things that I know that you have been knocking at the door of my heart for a long time, and I untie it and I surrender it to you. I turn it over to you in Jesus' name, and I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. And I ask you to fill me with your Spirit and help me to serve you the rest of my life. For Lord, I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, please, everyone's head still bowed. If you prayed that prayer, would you please raise your hand right here, right now? Let me know that you prayed. Thank you, sir. Anybody else that you prayed, raise it up high so I can see that. Yes, I see the guys in the back. I see you. Anybody else? Yes. Just look right at me because I need you to see me. Thank you, honey. Thanks. Anybody else? Thank you. If you prayed this prayer, those of you that prayed, look right up at me. Just those of you who prayed. I'm going to meet you right here in the back, right in that back room where those lights are on, where those people are sitting in there. We call that the cry room. I'm going to meet you right back there, right after the service. And I've got some books and some things I want to give to you. Don't leave without coming to see me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today that people made peace with you. And Lord Jesus, all of heaven is rejoicing. And they're praising you today at your throne. And we thank you that this church, that God, you are here and you're working and people are finding you as their Savior and Lord. And we give you praise and we give you thanks. Be with us this week, Lord. Help us to walk in the peace that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.